His sacred intention, which he should pursue with greatest responsibility, should be the salvation of all. With each sheep he has this purpose. Each should be treated according to its need, and all of them should be treated with the same kind of love. The Lord, the arch-shepherd, leaves the ninety-nine that have been found and seeks the one that is lost. He loves not only the lovable ones, but also the poor sinners that are lying in the dust by the road. Every pious shepherd of souls should love and act as he does. Nothing can turn his love away from anyone as long as God's word itself does not order otherwise. Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Joining us for this episode, the Reverend David Abel. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well, guys. Good to be back with you. How's the weather in Paducah? Weather in Paducah, we had we actually had a tornado here yesterday, a touchdown, had kind of minor damage. I think they said Category 2. It was a weird day yesterday. Today was fairly normal. Sunshine, still kind of windy, but... Do you have a basement? No, I don't have a basement. It was actually the tornado touched down not too far from my house. Do you have a math book and a long hallway that you can go in? We have like a big closet. We have a hallway closet <laughs> that kind of serves as a good tornado shelter, I guess, or the best that we've got anyways. Yeah, there you go. Well, thankfully, the Lord spared you any harm or any major damage, so that that's good. Yes. Zelwyn, how are things up near our nuclear stockpile? <laughs> Still pretty warm, actually. Snow's kind of melting down and kind of making everything a bit muddy. I think my normally blue Ford Ranger is turning a very lovely pinkish red from all of the mud. (laughs) (laughs) Press F for eastern North Dakota because they're still getting a lot of snow right now. Yeah, large swaths of the country still. I mean, Nebraska, right? Didn't they get hit in the floodings? So it's rough. Well, on that note, (laughs) we'll dig into... The subject for today, and that is starting out in the office. We're continuing our discussion of Wilhelm Leia's The Pastor. Now, this is a significant one, kind of a niche subject, probably, because it's talking to pastors in their first parishes, right? But a lot of this can really apply to any time you go to a new parish. I think these principles are apt. Leia brings up a lot of things that young men often don't consider, when discerning whether or not they should enter into preparation for the office. Leah is going to give us a model of ministry that is perhaps more, how would we put this, gentlemen, more rigorous, would you say, than what's expected today? Yeah, I think the rigor that he, I think rigor is a good word for it, or he's just, I find him to be acutely aware of like, especially in this chapter, how his actions private actions even also, and then the very public things that a pastor does, how those actions are going to impact the pastor's ability to carry out his office. And that awareness is something that I think is not ordinary to find among us, you know, just kind of plod through (laughs) the day or plod through the work. And maybe maybe this comes, we, we might be able to say this comes with the wisdom of having had a long ministry, you know, he's writing towards, he's writing, looking back on what he had done. And perhaps what he didn't do, right? Yeah. So then where does Leah begin? I would want to say this. I know we're going to touch on this quite a bit later, but the overarching concern here when he's talking about getting started in the office is 
gaining the trust of his members and the importance of trust. I guess this is just a, a brief note before we actually dive in. The importance for the parishioners to be able to trust their pastor and also the importance of the pastor to gain that trust, not in like a, a self-aggrandizing way, right? You're not, we're not interested in becoming everybody's favorite person. That's not what he's talking about. But the need for trust because of the nature of the ministry is what drives, I think, this whole chapter. Would you guys agree? Sure. It's part and parcel of being above reproach. And trust is an indispensable characteristic. And it's something that's quite fragile in a lot of ways. I think Leah made an excellent point at one point during this chapter when he says that if you're pursuing trust, like you're actually trying to get people to trust you, that's actually going to work against you. And what he means by that is the kind of guys who are trying to be everybody's friend. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, ingratiating yourself in a way you're kind of wagging your eyebrows, you know, that kind of approach. <laughs> what is what is <laughs> that's a that's a new one for me, really. <laughs> Well, if if the podcast ever goes video, I can I guess we could try to okay. illustrate that more there clearly. <laughs> Just think of uh, think of John Lovett in the old Saturday Night Live skit. You know, yeah, that's the ticket, that kind of stuff. So, so he begins by talking about the different kinds of people you'll have in your parish, in your congregation, right? And I, I think he he begins by talking about the need for the the pastor to love every one of his members for their salvation, right? That's always the goal. The pastor wants every one of his members to be saved. You know, if that's not possible, then as many as possibly can be saved to be saved. And so he's going to talk about the various kinds of people. And he's got some kind of classifications, I think, of his members for this purpose. The way that you deal with different people is different, right? So the way that you gain the trust or the way that you interact with one group of people would be inappropriate with another group. And you you want to be aware of that. Yeah. Well, what would be some examples of that just practically? I mean, even in our context. Yeah. He, he talks about the, the first people who come to you. I don't think that it's too, I don't think that it's, that it's wrong of him to say this. You know, he's not just being a cynical person, but he says a lot of times the first people who approach the pastor are the ones that, that you want to be, you know, not that you're, that you're purposely, you know, stiff arming them or something, but that's usually the people who first come to the pastor oftentimes will come with some kind of agenda, right? They want to feel him out either to get him on their side for something that's been cooking up that the pastor doesn't know about, or they just like to have the pastor in their back pocket or something like that. And so that's, that's just one example of a group within the congregation. Right. And Leah's actually going to warn against too easy of a fellowship yeah, or an, an irresponsible camaraderie with the parishioner, especially at the beginning. There's this great verse in John, I think it's chapter two. I think it's right after the miracle at Cana, where Jesus goes up to the Passover. Many people believe in him, but he, for his part, didn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in men. And that verse kind of, I never quite knew what that meant, but I think this is exactly what Leah is saying. Like, as a pastor, you need to be aware that people do not come to you. Don't be naive, right? People do not come with to you without motives. And so you don't want to too quickly believe everything that's said to you. I mean, or it's a case of being easily flattered on the one hand or easily intimidated or buffaloed on the other. 
two sides of the same coin there. Yeah. And like you say, it's people who would want to exert some kind of force or manipulation among the pastor. The other reason is it creates enmity between the members at times, too. Right. And so it, it's kind of a delicate act for the pastor. And sometimes because of these principles, the pastor can find himself a bit lonely. And, that, and I think that's just going to be part of it. And that temptation to be everyone's friend is sometimes more intense in, in those solitary times for some people. And so that's the question we ask. Is, is this kind of thing, this kind of admonishment, or that, rather this caution that Leah gives us, is it possible is it even good advice? Is it is it too cold, too formal? I really think it's more just, I mean, I was given this advice during my vicarage as well, so this isn't the first time I've heard it. But I think it's really just coming down and saying that you just have to be aware of how you're interacting with people. This is not giving you a license to be a jerk about it. This is not saying the very first person who comes to you, they're only going to have negative motives or something like that. It's really right, just right. it's really just more of a question of who is this person? How should I interact with them? And how would Christ have me speak to them? Yeah, I mean, because we can use this as an excuse to just be almost aloof or even elitist, right? Right. I don't need to know how to talk to these people. I'm only, my call documents say word and sacrament. So they'll come on Sunday, hear me here. And that's kind of going to be my only interaction. You do kind of still have to be a man of the people. And that's good. You do need to be personable. It, listen, the ministry is not all top hats and monocles, cravats and hat pins. Okay. <laughs> it's, it is meeting your people where they are. And it is being among your people. But there is a distance that has to be kept for, for any number of reasons. So, yeah, we're not saying be elitist. We're just simply saying, or Leia, rather, simply saying, be prudent, be wise. That That's a good point. The purpose of this is not, the purpose is actually so that you can better know your members and then interact with them appropriately, right? So he's not, I don't think that he's saying you need, you can never open up to your members or you can never receive them. You know, you shouldn't spend time with them. That's certainly not what he's saying. But what he's saying is when a person first comes to you, don't think that the that the first impression, you're going to know everything you need to know about that person, right? right. And, and the job actually requires this kind of, you have to sort of be a watchman and you have to have the view from the outside because when you go to people with whatever, you know, pastoral guidance that you need to give them, you do, you have to come from the outside with a certain kind of objectivity that you, that you couldn't have if you just, you know, kind of believed everything that was ever said to you. And, you know, you'll notice he doesn't really spend a lot of time on a topic like this the, that we would today, like with the case of being alone with members of the opposite sex. I mean, that's the most obvious example of this kind of principle or of the same sex. It's 2019 after all. Yeah. Oof. You know, I mean, that's the, world we live in now. So, you know, being mindful of that sort of thing, which of course is a problem in the 1800s just as much as it is today, but that's probably the the easiest one for us to fathom. Is there's a reason why pastors don't put themselves in those kinds of situations where it could even give the appearance of evil. But it's also much more as we've discussed a little more even more practical than that. So, Moving on here really quick, the next pill is one that's pretty hard to swallow, and that's Leia telling us to be prepared to stay a while. And what what does that mean? His primary concern here is that you don't look at all of the negatives 
of a situation and say, oh, well, this is just my first call. I'll just get something better. In fact, I kind of bristle at that language of first call because we sort of assume that, you know, the first one's always just going to be that. Yeah, a guy always has one eye on the door. God moves people. He sometimes moves people after a short time, sometimes after a long time, oftentimes at a a medium time, whatever that means. God does do that. He's saying that we don't try to orchestrate our exit or don't assume our exit. Because it is true, especially guys coming out of the seminary, that this call may well be the only call you receive. You might be there your entire ministry, and it does happen. The point is, don't keep an eye on the door simply because everywhere you go is going to be a job. It's going to be, it's going to require work. You know why? Because you're going to a church filled with sinners. You're going to a place where there is sin. So you shouldn't, you shouldn't expect the grass to be greener on the other side. Listen, every parish you go to is going to need some new sod put down. And that's just the way it is. You weather the storm as you can. And if the Lord calls you elsewhere, he calls you elsewhere. But in the meantime, he calls you to be where you are. I think too, Leah has a, I think he has a really keen insight into human nature within like the way that congregation members relate to one another and watch the pastor and kind of see who he befriends or who he ignores. You know, that's what the first section was about. But here it's more, the insight is the the pastor himself, when he gets to a new place, it's the easiest thing in the world to see all the problems. And then the the natural or the sinful the next step is I just got to get out of here, right? There's too many problems. So I'll just go somewhere else. And when I go somewhere else, then I'll find, you know, the the grass is greener over there. And like you're saying, Willie, the, the point is there is no place where the grass is green and you're not there to just enjoy all the good things, right? He's got this great quote. I got to read it because it's so good. He says, it is unmanly and childish to want everything good which shows that one does not want what one ought, that one does not comprehend the exalted love of a shepherd, that one has sought oneself, not the office and the kingdom of God, if one sighs and moans with homesickness for an earthly home. Like you said, this is a hard pill to swallow, but it's, but it's necessary because the temptation is so easy to slip into. Woe is me, my congregation, I, I just have all these problems I got to move on. And I think something that makes this really a stark point is that you consider that Leah was known for being a great missionary advocate. So he sends a lot of pastors to America. When he sends them over, they come to America knowing full well that they may never see their home or their family ever again. And they give it all up for the sake of the kingdom. Now, some of these guys will be able to make it back to Germany. I think like Walter did, right? I mean, he wasn't sent by Leah, but he still came from Saxony to the New World, or <laughs> the New World, to America. You could make it back, but chances are regular missionary sent out to be a circuit rider or parish pastor. That's it. You're going to say goodbye, and you're going to see him on the other side. You're going to see him in glory. You know, that really hammers the point home, you know. Our homesickness is really of a different flavor than theirs. Yeah, I think the homesickness, right, and this is, this this is a thing that, that we do encounter and we experience it ourselves to some extent. You're in an unfamiliar place, you're surrounded by unfamiliar people, and, you know, especially now when it's so easy to see back to your family. I mean, you can FaceTime, I FaceTime with my family all the time, and so I can see you see what you're missing out on or what in your mind you're missing out on. And that only, that's really 
kind of counterproductive because it only amplifies the homesickness, right? And so what what Leia is so good at here is to to remind you you're you're not there, you're not called to enjoy all the good stuff. You're not called to have this earthly home. You're called to work. And that's something that is worth <laughs> reading and saying out loud and reminding yourself of. He even applies that to things like your salary, for example, to things like your parsonage, for example, to all of these earthly things. And he says, you know, we might look at some of these things and say, maybe the parsonage isn't quite what we want it to be, or maybe the salary isn't quite what we want it to be, or any number of worldly concerns. And he says, if you're so concerned about those above all else that is driving you away from your duties, you really are focusing on the wrong thing. That, you know, we are called in some sense to forsake the world, to endure much for the sake of the kingdom of God, and those who have left behind homes and families and all this, you know, they will receive much, but they will also have to suffer much. And I'm in. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. And we are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, David Appelt talking, Wilhelm Leia talking the pastor, and starting out in the office. So we talked about some of these preliminary things, having a healthy distance, but still a cordial and friendly and close relationship, a caring relationship with the sheep, with your congregation. And now Leia is going to talk about simply doing the work that lies before you. What's that all about? The previous two things that we discussed are, you can kind of think of them as pitfalls, you know, like what what to avoid. Here now he's going to say, okay, now once you kind of get over that initial homesickness or you get over the initial, I see everything that's wrong, then you you set out to do things. And again, he's he's really great on just the, the insight into human nature here. The, the pastor is going to want to fix everything immediately. And he points out this is dangerous, right? This because you're doomed to fail. <laughs> and then what happens is you immediately show you show that you are a beginner and you lose again, think back to what we were saying at the very beginning. The problem with that is you lose then the trust of your members because people will see, oh, he tried to do too much, and that's the sure sign of kind of a fool or the sure sign of a beginner, anyways. The examples that he uses, I think, are actually kind of vivid and 
almost a little counterintuitive for us as preachers. I mean, the first one he says is we shouldn't be methodical with our visitation. And I'm assuming, and maybe you want to correct me on this, David, I think what he means is that, you know, don't do your visitations as if it were, I have a list and I'm just going to go from A to Z or, you know, something like that. Because he says the people who are going to try to avoid you can avoid you even if you are going about it methodically. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what he means, actually, Zellan. I think my impression was that he's saying, like, when you go to visit people, don't have like this methodical, here are the five things we're going to talk about kind of a thing. Okay. Yeah. Knock on the door and be like, hello, good day. Yeah. Now open your catechisms. Right. Because, and what he says is they will, they, they will soon learn a method to hide from you. Right. So when, when your visit is methodical, it's very easy to give methodical answers and that's self-defeating. Right. And so he talks about, you know, I, I think part of what he's saying is don't be overly, don't be overly visiting which is sort of the opposite of what we need to hear and what we've we've talked about on on the podcast right because we will again use that that advice to say well see I don't have to visit Leia says I don't have to visit but he's just right. saying don't don't rely on a method when you're doing it actually visit people when you go to their house be a human being not a robot yeah. is that yeah. kind of a- yeah, I think so but but Willie you had asked like what's the better way so instead of trying to do too much what he says is just be a beginner Admit that you are a beginner and be a beginner. Don't try to come come across as if you know everything and you can you have the answer for every problem in the parish, but start start small and grow then in the amount of work that you're doing and also the intensity of work that you're doing, right? Because again, what people will then see is instead of a guy who flamed out right away, they'll see a guy who started small and grows in the work kind of in a natural way. One of the other things he's going to caution against is overly specific sermons. I think what he means by this is if you go into a parish and you start to address specific situations immediately and with like the full fire of all of the rhetorical impressiveness that you can conjure, you're basically just going to create all kinds of tensions. Because you haven't really gotten to know these people yet. You haven't, you don't really know the full story yet. And yes, there are times in which you will be kind of forced to address certain things, but you should still go about it with a certain kind of prudence, recognizing that the people need to trust you more before you can actually bring the law to bear in their lives in that kind of way. Right? Yeah. We're very easy to say, you don't know me you have no business telling me this or that. Therefore, I don't have to listen to you because, you know, would we trust a guy who came up to us on the street and started saying, you know, you're doing all of these things wrong in your life? Well, of course not. So we still have to actually know the people in order to actually approach them. Yeah. You have to gain their trust too, right? Mm -hmm. In order to be the one who's actually giving advice or even giving them the gospel in a way, right? You need to win their trust, and really the pastor must be trustworthy. That's sort of the tension there for a pastor, right? And I think he would admit that, like, the office of the ministry will have a certain—now, it depends, I guess, on what your predecessor has done, 
But even though you're new to the congregation, you're not the first pastor in most cases, right? Unless you're planting the congregation, you're not the first pastor, for better or worse. And and so there is some trust that's already there, but there's also going to be some suspicion that's already there too, right? And so trust takes time. And the only way to, to gain trust is to do the things that create trust, right? You have to works, right? It's It's through working with people. We know this to be the case in our own ministry too, right? It's it's when you go through, you know, a funeral of a parent that you grow the closest to, to your members or as you're working through pre-marriage counseling or marriage counseling or as you're just kind of doing the normal work of the ministry, that's how you gain trust more than if you just came in and said, hey, you all need to trust me now because I'm your pastor. Yeah, I'm going to bring things back to the way they ought to have been. I'm going to show you this ancient way and and this beautiful ceremony and everything. I'm going to give you all the old hymns and and then they're surprised when people don't love them for it. Part of it's bristling against good things, but the other part is because you come in like a bull in a china shop. What do you expect? Evangelism is similar too as we talked about in previous episodes, but your relationships that are built like this are an organic thing. And it's not something that you can just make happen with a formula or magic or just by some show of will, right? But just by pure magnetism. Real, honest trust has to be earned and it has to be built. And like you say, it's built by just being there with your people when they need you, being in the trenches, and being honest with them when you need to as well. You're not trustworthy when you're just, you know, Mr. Smooth It Away, when you're just trying to appease people's consciences, for example, or trying to be the cool pastor. Being a drinking buddy is not the same thing as being their pastor. So our relationship looks very different, but like any relationship, it must be carefully cultivated and nurtured and indeed pruned if need be. It's the way it is. It's not, yeah, you know, and I mean, I really can't, I wish I could put a more romantic spin on it, but you just got to get in there and know your people and love your people. He also talks at the at the very end of this section on doing the work. So the, the full title of this section is, Do the Work That Lies Before You, Let Everything Else Come to You. So he, he recognizes that you will, things will come to you in time. And this again, this goes hand in hand with having the mindset of, I'm going to be here a little while. I'm going to be here a while. That is going to lend itself to gaining trust and building trust. But he also has this great final note about the tendency to to think that you're going to accomplish everything that you want to accomplish. And he, he kind of has a, a great little caution against that at the very end of this, this section of his chapter where he talks about the pastor should not think that he is the sole factor in what gets done in a congregation. Right, he is one factor, and he's in his his preaching, his teaching is an important factor. But there's all kinds of other things that happen, and and it may be that the Lord gives great growth to a pastor's work, but it also may be that he doesn't, and that's actually the primary factor in a congregation. Right, I water, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was the Lord who gave the growth, and so he's got this great little note about everything else. The pastor submits in prayer and supplication to the one who is and remains love, even in his hidden counsels. That is when we don't understand why isn't the work that I'm doing accomplishing more and his guidance in the dark. I thought I just thought that was a great note at the end of this section. Yeah, great stuff. 
So moving on a little bit, he's going to take a little bit of time to talk about predecessors and successors and how one ought not to have such ill will towards a predecessor. If you're always negative about your predecessor, like he screwed everything up, he's the reason why I have all these bad practices, he's the reason why you know I can't get anything done in this parish, it really is, for one thing, going to reflect very poorly on you because the people will see that and they, because people always tend to kind of, after a pastor leaves a congregation, unless he's done something particularly terrible, they tend to see him in a very positive light. And so they're going to see you naysaying him and they will take that ill and actually look at you and not trust you nearly as much. Because let's face it, as, as Leah says, our predecessors are human. They did some things wrong. You're doing some things wrong. But at the same time, they did what they could to the best of their ability. Maybe they took the heat for something that you don't have to deal with anymore. And you can't seem to focus on that because you only want to focus on the negative. Well, I think it's it's especially a temptation at the beginning of your ministry because then you you are seeing it. Go, this goes hand in hand with what he was saying before about uh, when you first come to a place it's very easy to see all the things that are wrong, right? And so when you first get into a congregation, what you're seeing is the results of the previous pastor's work in a lot of ways, right? Now, some of his work is going to be hidden from you, which is why why you shouldn't just automatically assume, oh, everything this guy did was bad. Or or on the other hand, everything he did was good because you don't really have the full view of it. But this is especially important at the beginning of your ministry, which is why he has it in this section, of course, right? Because that's especially when you're going to be thinking, what did, what did the previous guy do? So it's a case of putting the best construction on everything and trying to obey the commandment. Yeah. And, and he also has a good point about when you honor the previous pastor, even if, you know, maybe especially if the congregation knows, well, he, you know, he did all these bad things, uh, you're still gaining, there, there is a, a positive thing there in that you are showing the congregation how to honor the office without necessarily, you know, supporting everything that the man did in the office. And of course, we can't talk about predecessors without talking about successors. So ought we to lay down, you know, a good foundation for them? What does Leia have to say? His his advice here is is that we shouldn't create such an such a situation that no one else would be able to uphold it. This idea that if I do so much that then the next guy comes in and he's not physically capable of doing so much, or if I do things in a certain way and my successor can't really do you know in good conscience do them that way, you're basically creating a nightmare situation for those who follow you. Yeah, yeah. He has a I think he has a really healthy sense of what came before you and what will come after you you are not the <laughs> you are not the only one who has ever been the pastor in this place nor will you be the only one who ever will be and just if you have that sense of that then you can avoid a lot of this right yeah unless your plan is to go in and close the doors or something yeah true <laughs> yeah but we don't have too many people that are that sadistic and, yeah. <laughs> and that pessimistic so they're not among our listeners right that's right So, all right. So moving on, Leah brings up the pastor's public life, and now he must guard it and put it in order from the beginning. So what is is the pastor's public life? 
Here he's just talking about all the duties, maybe not even that the congregation expects of him. And and I think part of what he's talking about here may be historically, it wouldn't be the same as for us. Because I think that, that Leah has more responsibilities within the state and the pastor in, in Germany at that time had more responsibilities within the state than what we do here in America. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, he talks about roles those who are under him, those who are above him, those that he's equal to. Mm-hmm. And it's in a state relationship, yeah. But at the same time, we can kind of shift a little bit and put this in our context, because in the Missouri Synod, we're basically a congregational government. And while all of our constitutions are supposed to be basically the same, it's quite possible you'll find variances in between congregations, right? So they ran on different models, but all with some kind of, ultimately some kind of voters assembly somewhere in the scheme. There'll be a board of elders or church council, that kind of thing. And I do think that delegation of authority in a very administrative sense, that's what I mean by that, is extremely important for the pastor. And the pastor ought to be willing to let the church officers do their jobs. So, you know, don't mess with the treasurer. (laughs) <laughs> let the custodians do their work, respect them in the offices that they do hold and and run the church decently and in order. You know, yeah, we're not officials of the state like you would have been in Leia country, but we can still use this principle here. Everybody has their proper sphere and we ought to honor that as best as we can. I mean, so a lot of this is just stuff that like your dad should have told you, right? Get your do things on time, do things in order. If if you are, if people are reporting to you, like make time to actually sit down with them, show them that you're, you know, this is what he means by those who are under you. You know, if you're supervising someone it, and it could, be, it could be the work that that's happening in a congregation, but it could also be, you know, Willie, you brought up janitors. Like I think in a lot of places, the pastor is, not necessarily over the janitor, but he's interacting with the janitor quite often. And you want to you want to consider how that relationship ought to look. Right. And, and let me just add this. Keep the janitors on your side. I don't know what you have to do to anger a janitor. You know, they deal with the worst <laughs> things. And just, you know, don't make that guy mad. He's got one of the hardest jobs. Or she. You know, be be good to everybody. Be responsible towards everybody and be reasonable, be human and be kind to everybody, no matter what their role is. I mean, you could argue that the treasurer's the treasurer is more important to the pastor than the janitor, but at the same time, you've never seen a janitor strike either, or a sanitation <laughs> strike. So, you know, don't get too hasty there. He talks a lot about the registers and putting the registers in order. I don't know what, what you guys, I'm kind of curious what you thought when you read that, because it's not the only place he talks about, like, keeping the registers up to speed, which is like the official church records, Mm -hmm. you know, of baptisms, confirmations, even has a note about like recording when people come to confession, not what is confessed, but. Well, I think in those days, and really even in our country up until a certain point, you know, you didn't have a church secretary. So it's the pastor's handwriting you see in the old ledger books and the old church records. I mean, unless there was just somebody who had excellent penmanship. And then they would write it, but it was the pastor's duty. It's just like announcing for communion. Nobody else is going to have access to that book or that list, save the pastor, right? Yeah. So yeah, I think it's I think it's a case of 
of something that was probably more involved and the pastor was more directly involved with it in those days to where we've either delegated it away today or spreadsheets have made it a lot easier yeah. and computer programs. That would be my situation because I'm in one of those cases where I don't actually have a secretary. And yes, those kinds of ministries still do exist. So Leah's uh, advice here is actually quite apt because keeping the books can be perhaps some of the most tedious of work. Yet he says, if you get it in order and get it in a good order, then it becomes very straightforward and is actually quite helpful to your ministry. Yeah, by being lazy to get out of work, you actually create more work for yourself being lazy. So and it would be so much easier if you just did it. It's a very private thing. Nobody's Nobody else is going to see that, right? But if you don't do it, it will come back <laughs> to haunt you in other ways, right? And think about how important the baptismal records are, you know, even for government things in those days. You know, I mean, there's a civil aspect to this too. People need those records in a time before birth certificates and and, and modern forms of people tracking. <laughs> yeah. So, And if you didn't have it, and again, so to bring this, how does this relate to the whole rest of the chapter? The whole thing, I think, revolves around what can a pastor do to either prove himself trustworthy or to lose trust? And one of the easiest ways to lose trust is if things are just always disheveled, you know, mm-hmm. it's the quickest way for people to, oh, pastor, do you have this? Oh, I can't find it. <laughs> you know, well, people will start to connect dots and say, well, if he doesn't keep that in order. On one side, you can be just too distant, cold, almost too professional, top hat and monocle. On the other side, it's like you've got yesterday's eggs in your beard and cracker crumbs on your shirt, and you can't find any piece of paper in your office. So we have two things at play here. So don't be sloppy. And and at the same time, don't be, you know, don't just be perched in a tower somewhere. Well, all right, we've got to take a break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, David Apple talking Leah's the pastor and the pastor starting out in the office. So we finished up last segment talking a little bit about the pastor's public life. And now Leah shifts to a discussion of the pastor's social life. So what does that mean? What does that entail? And how should a pastor view his social life? Well, he, he's going to talk about joining certain societies, which again, I mean, what, what he talks about, the particulars anyways, are going to be very different than what we 
what we would have opportunity to join unless you're joining like the Kiwanis Club or something like that. Lions or something, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, what, what kind of societies that we have. But we can take, I think, there is wisdom in what he's saying about don't join a society that later you're going to have to step out of. And what he means is don't don't do something that jeopardizes your office. Don't be part of something that would contradict your office. Even if you think, well, this is my free time. This is my me time. I can do whatever I want with my time now because there's no such thing. Yeah, I've clocked out so I can stop being a Christian now. <laughs> I also think it's interesting because you mentioned it kind of being different from our own context. His assumptions about what a pastor is going to have available to him, I think, is quite telling because he says this, like on page 54, if anyone has the book, while the jurist, the physician, etc., walk in very limited spheres of life and are almost forced to one-sidedness through their occupation, the pastor, through his office, is guided toward contemplating the general interests of humanity. He has the chance to take part in every intellectual movement, more so than other professions. That is also the reason why, in every area of human knowledge, amateurs from the ranks of the clergy have excelled. So he's kind of talking about these uh, like intellectual kind of circles that pastors in his day might have an opportunity to participate in, like how some of the most famous scientists, for example, were clergy. And that's not really something that's available to us as clergy in America at the present time. I mean, we're not usually viewed as being part of the, the upper crust, part of the upper class. Yeah, we have partisan online newspapers, Facebook groups, and blogs, though. What more do we need? <laughs> <laughs> With these, we shall be content. But but your point is absolutely right, though. Even even if we are, aren't in these same kind of circles, the circles that we do join are going to reflect on us. You know, should a pastor be seen going to... I mean, we'll, we'll just take an example that comes even from Gerberding. Should the pastor go to the bar, for example? How should we approach that? Yeah, and, and I think we we sometimes get the perspective wrong on this. We say, is it a sin? And if it's not a sin, I'm free to do it. And that's not what Paul teaches us, for example, about meat sacrifice to idols. And I don't think it's what the Bible teaches us or what Leah teaches us about our witness either. Just because something isn't a sin doesn't mean it's the best thing for a pastor to take part in. Right. Now we're not saying, you know, we're fitly spoken as not making a pronouncement about going to bars or whatever. <laughs> but but truly, that's something that could be different depending on upon which region of the country that you're in. In Boston, walk into a bar with your collar and you're probably going to get a free drink. In Alabama, people are going to be talking about it at church the next Sunday. And frankly, I don't think it's enough to say, well, or it's right to say, well, if they're scandalized by it, they're just a bunch of pietists who don't understand the gospel, and then they need to they need to just get over themselves. As a pastor, in a certain context, sometimes you're going to have to abstain from things that would otherwise be perfectly acceptable. There's a case in, in my congregation's history, and the, I think it went something like this. The, the pastor went to a baseball game on a Sunday afternoon, and he smoked a cigar at the baseball game and this split the congregation and it i think that the guy the pastor left shortly after it and in the history books that we have of our own congregation it never says why the pastor left but the assumption that most people make is it's because he was smoking a cigar it could very well have been the fact that he was at a baseball game on a sunday afternoon i so i try to 
you know, right, tell right. my people. It's not just the smoking of the cigar that was the problem for people back then. It was the fact that he was at a baseball game on a Sunday afternoon. But anyways, that that's just a point or, or that's a, an example. And we can, you know, I'm not trying to say that you can't smoke a cigar or go to a baseball game. But the actions that you take, the the things that you do are noticed by people. And what do you want them to notice about you? And the same can probably be said of being careful about political statements, being careful about not to be like scared of saying anything, and especially not on their issues where we need to speak up. But, you know, sometimes you just have to be quiet or sometimes you just have to abstain from something. It's it's such a foreign concept for us in many places to think about the pastor and some things being taboo for him. And, and that might be more of an intra pastor discussion than it is, you know, the lady might be like, yeah, we're totally watching everything you do and judging you for it. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, nevertheless, just a little bit of self-awareness here. And I, and I think that the social life also speaks to your personal conduct again, how you speak with people, having that appropriate distance, for example. You look at Leia's day and it's going to, you're going to see things like don't go to card games and go don't go dancing. And, you know, what would be an equivalent of that today? I don't know. But nevertheless, it's about avoiding that appearance of evil in those cases. And he has this great sense of the pastor pressing on. There's a couple of times already in the book, we're just getting into it, but he talks about the call has to go out for everyone to press forward. Just that orientation of of the way that you think about your office and your ministry of, I want to advance, I want to, I want to press onward. That goes back to what you're saying, Willie. Well, that means sometimes okay, this is this may not be a sinful thing, but it's not going to help me press on. And here's the other thing, too, that's at play here is, especially with these societies, is becoming so obsessed with them that your work suffers. So becoming so obsessed with this group you're a part of, or becoming so obsessed with, say, a hobby, that you're just totally absorbed in it, and you're neglecting both your home duties and your parish duties. And that's something we can probably relate to a little more easily. So much time dedicated to whatever at the expense of home or parish. Well, and like you'd mentioned, like the thing with dancing or going to the theater or stuff like that, you know, we might tend to scoff at something like that and say, oh, well, you know, they're just being pietists or something. But at the same time, and I think this is where Paul is coming in, this is certainly where Leia is coming in, that not only avoiding the appearance of evil but also avoiding the appearance of evil for somebody else. Because mm-hmm. I think that's really the, the distinction yes. here, because yes. we, we might be in a situation that we know we can handle 100% fine. There's, no, there's really very little chance that we're going to fall into sin in this particular situation. But if my brother sees me in this situation and, and is scandalized by it, and it is led into a sin, especially as pastors, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. But you know that means you don't get to say my Christian freedom and just absolutely scandalize the poor soul and cause him to stumble. We have to stop using our freedom as an excuse. We have to realize that we are slaves to Christ, and therefore our freedom only extends so far. Our freedom should never be taken as license, and our freedom should never be used as a cudgel to beat over the head of the weaker brethren for the sake of the gospel. And and I'm afraid that sometimes we fall into that lie and fall prey to it. So, you know, just be careful of that. Having a couple less beers 
you'll be fine for the sake of your brother, or even having none, you'll be okay. And we always go back to the alcohol example for whatever reason. That's just probably peculiar to American interests, <laughs> I suppose. We're not beating up on alcohol per se. So tied into that then, the pastor's social life is going to be the need for prudence, the need for self-control. And I believe these two things are intimately related, and that's why Leah follows the social life with this discussion of prudence. So what is self-control? In his discussion of it, it's what? It's only a paragraph. It's very short discussion, but this is how he ends the chapter, talking about self-control. Is it even a paragraph? If you look in your in the book, it's on page 56. Yeah, it's three sentences. We'll call that a paragraph. Yeah, we'll call it a paragraph. But his point is that I think the reason he ends on this note, this is kind of summing up the whole chapter, is the need for self-control. If you don't have self-control, none of these things that we've talked about are ever going to be put into practice, right? You're not going to have patience with people. You're not going to be patient with your own situation. You're not going to be patient with your public life, with your social life. It's just going to all be kind of helter-skelter. You're going to be going every which direction, and therefore you never press on forward. So self-control, this is just another good word for, if I say temperance, is that going to be heard the wrong way? <laughs> but but isn't that a synonym for self-control? The temperate man is not necessarily the one who always says no, but the temperate man is the one who says, who knows when to say no and who knows when to say yes to to himself. Yeah, and I think that's really the the key here is learning how to say no to yourself. Because yes is kind of the easy answer for us. In fact, it's very easy to be self-indulgent in that way, to always say yes to something. But to say no at the appropriate times and to say no even when it hurts, I think is the most difficult part of Christian self-control. And and for the pastor, like, think of what we're talking about with the friendships you have within a congregation. I know this is one that, that different pastors have different kind of views on, but if we're just looking at what Leah suggests, I think Leah does suggest a more distant, not in a cold way, but, but not you're not there to be friends with the congregation members. And, I mean, we can debate if you guys want to. We can talk about whether that's good advice or not, but... The self-control comes in because the opportunity is there to have very close friendships with people. And I think what, what he's trying to point out is what you give up by saying yes to those friendships is this ability to come as the one from outside and the one who, who can come objectively, which you, you don't really have with your friends. I fear that people would hear that and just sort of assume that Pastors saying pastors can't have friends or that pastors need to be, like you say, standoffish or aloofish because we we so value and prize this kind of warmth, as it were, that we see any kind of an attempt to mitigate that as being unnecessarily harsh. Yeah, I think I think some of it just comes from the times. I mean, people have very different expectations about the pastor. I mean, don't you I mean, you guys surely come across this people expect the pastor to be really friendly. Like that's part of what it means to be a good pastor, right? Is that you're really friendly. And so when you read Leah, it's just a very different view on things. I think Gerberding was the same way. You know, Gerberding talked about 
the pastor should not be seen shaking people's hand after the church service. Well, now if you did that, what would happen to you? If you didn't like <laughs> receive people at the back of the church, they would say, what's wrong with him? Why is he so mean? So yeah, different differences in times. But I think if we're just thinking of this in terms of self-control, that shows one example of a place where self-control would say no to what you could easily say yes to. And would you say that a pastor is called to a greater degree of self-control than, say, the you know an average Christian? And I don't mean that like pastors being like super Christians or something like that. I just mean that, you know, not many of you should be teachers, as James says. When you're in a position of authority, I think you do the, the virtues that are required for that position of authority become more magnified, right? Because your actions, I don't want to say trickle down, but your actions will affect more people if you're in a position of authority versus if you weren't. And that's especially true in the pastoral ministry. Like you have these souls who are in your care and what you say and what you do matters in a way to a greater degree to them, not just to yourself, but also to them who are in your charge in a way that the janitors don't. Right? And that's not to say that before the judgment seat of Christ, somehow it's viewed differently, but I think it, well, I think it is because like you said, Zell, when that passage from James, not everyone should become a teacher. They will be judged more strictly. Well, you know, epistle of straw and all that. These books are not <laughs> meant to be taken seriously, guys. Come on. <laughs> then what do you do with Malachi? Well, that's that's Old Testament. Well, okay. You got an answer for everything. All right. I'm laying the sarcasm on thick, you know, just in case the audience doesn't know that. <laughs> we We do. We easily take these passages. See, it's easy to take Leah's advice lightly because sometimes we take the Scripture's advice and the Scripture's commandments and the Scripture's plain and clear meaning lightly. So if you're not going to listen to St. James, you're probably not going to listen to St. Wilhelm. He definitely has a high view of like the conduct of the pastor. And you're, you're absolutely right, Willie. I wonder if... You know, before reading this, would I have shared the same thing? I mean, there's little bits and pieces of this wisdom, like Zell, when you said when you were on Vicarage, you got similar kind of stuff. I think that it's still nuggets of this are shared by pastors. And at the seminary, we're told some of these things. But but I think that it it is like reading something that, you know, it doesn't, it's not natural. It's It's not an easy application because we're not used to thinking of the pastor in the same way that Leia does. All right, guys, a couple minutes left. Any final thoughts about this section? It might seem a little, I, th I think you said at the beginning, it might seem a little esoteric or maybe just a little too specialized. But I think there is something that can be taken from this that would apply to not only pastors in general, but perhaps Christians in general, in that the need for things like self-control the need for bearing with the weaknesses of others is something that is true of every Christian. It's not just something that only pastors need to take heed of. So as we go about carrying out our ministry, we should consider what it means to not only be a Christian, but to be a Christian called to shepherd other Christians, the high calling that that requires of us. 
I would just want to emphasize again, what stands out to me in reading this, the whole book, but especially here, is just the way that Leia is aware, very much aware of human nature and the, the nature that then will be at work in the pastoral office, but also in the congregation. And to, to read someone who is acutely aware of that, I know that it helps me in just kind of taking stock of my own work. I want to say that you can't read this without profit because it is so clear and he is, that awareness comes through very easily. Well, thank you very much, guys. David, always a pleasure. We'll see you back on the next Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heine again. David Apple, thank you. God love you all, and God bless. Trust can never be achieved immediately, only gradually. The means for this are works, works of love, faithful, patient works of love. Yet trust is not the immediate goal. Rather, it is the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Trust comes to the one who seeks the kingdom of God and its righteousness. It is therefore an undignified whoring if a pastor seeks to win trust at any cost. Men of God wish for trust, and they do what they can to awaken trust, but they do not run after it. Rather, they wait for it. In this way, it usually comes sooner and remains longer once it has arrived.